Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Ewan Lawson and today we're going to be talking about how to take action around your health, fitness and your lifestyle. And I said in the last episode I want to talk about lots of different things and this new phase of Blokeology is going to be looking at diets, weight loss, sleep, mental health, productivity, mindfulness, lots of stuff. And I think the challenge with that is if you're looking at your life and you don't quite know where to go, the difficulty is knowing where to start. Where on earth do you you know, make the most immediate impact? What's the most important area to address? One of the things that when I was involved in writing The Healthy Writer last year was that at the end of that, I created something called a Healthy Bloke Action Plan. And it's just a download that um, people can get that gives you a bit of a chance to take a bit of an audit an MOT, if you like, at your life, and try to work out what areas would be useful and important, and using evidence-based tools to assess them. The kind of things we look at when we're working as doctors, as GPs, and we assess people for depression, or we're thinking about whether or not there's an issue with weight and talking about diet. So what I want to do today is go through a few of those different tools and I'm going to take it in those seven major areas and talk through them and the ideal way to do this would be to get along and download the healthy bloke action plan probably the best way to do that is to get along to the website at www.blokeology.io slash action plan and you can download that action plan there and actually that will give you the tools and the links and everything I talk about will be on there I'll certainly include them in the show notes as well but it will give you a chance to uh, work through in a little bit more detail too. So let's get cracking. Okay, so the very first area that I have on the action plan is to do with tackling any extra weight. Now, there is a risk that there's a value judgment that's associated with this. And I said at the very start of the action plan, that this is not about making unrealistic promises promises about beach bodies or six packs or that those kind of unrealistic body images. But I think the fact is that actually most people, the majority of the population, certainly in places and countries like the UK and Australia and America, the majority of the population is carrying a little bit more weight than perhaps is good for their best possible health. And I think it's more a question that if you lose a little bit of weight, you will often feel a lot better with other things around it. My experience as a GP is that Okay, you lose a bit of weight and yes, the statistics will say you live longer, but that doesn't really matter. The difference that really makes an impact on you and your day-to-day life is that you lose a little bit of weight and it's quite possible you'll feel more energetic. It's very likely that if you've got a bit of osteoarthritis or wear and tear in your knees or your hips or your back, that will be improved. You might well have fewer problems with things like reflux, acid indigestion. There are lots and lots of different ways in which losing a bit of weight can help. At the more extreme end of the spectrum, you may even be flirting with or actually have type 2 diabetes. And losing weight then becomes a fundamental part of the management of that. So my first action plan point is that losing a bit of extra weight is incredibly useful. And there is a kind of a a cultural difficulty with this, is that the average BMI in the UK is now something like 275 Now, most people know that a normal BMI should be somewhere between 20 
and 25. That's what's generally recommended. But the actual average nowadays is 27.5. And that means that 50% of people have got a BMI of higher than 27.5. 50% of people have got a BMI of less than 27.5. And actually, that means that there are a significant number of people who've got a BMI that's over the recommended of 25 and yet are still... And I, but I still overweight. But, and we, but, but the important thing is they would clearly think of themselves as being less heavy than most other people. They're going to look around and, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of the population are actually going to be heavier than them. And you look less than average. So there's a little bit of cultural conditioning here that goes on that we can all get used to the fact that we carry a little bit of extra weight and uh, perhaps don't feel that we should necessarily sort that out as a priority. Certainly, I think that's something that happened to me in the past about sort of five or six years ago. My BMI was actually just a shade over 25. And I was going to, and I described this in the book in The Healthy Writer, I was looking at getting a new bicycle. I started, you know, eyeing up carbon fiber bikes, road bikes in all the various places online and researching them. And I realized that the weight difference wasn't that great when you bought one. And I was a bit reluctant to spend that much money. And I thought to myself, actually, if I lost a few pounds, actually, that'd be a lot cheaper. And in fact, would be, I'd probably go a lot quicker than actually spending the money on a bicycle. So I set out just to lose a few pounds, maybe four or five pounds um, in weight. So two or three kilograms. And what happened was I made a few changes and I can talk about them at some other point, but the weight kept coming off me. And actually by the end of it, and it took quite a long period of time, it took about 12, 18 months. I steadily lost weight at kind of a very sustainable level and made quite, you know, robust changes to my lifestyle. Robust in that they were changes I could sustain. They weren't robust in that they were huge. They were robust in that I could manage to keep going with them for many months on end and it become my new lifestyle rather than it just being a diet or a faddy thing. And in the end, I actually got my weight all the way down to uh, some 11 and a half stone, 11 stone 10. So I lost something in the region of, well, it'll be about 20 to 20 pounds, 25 pounds. So sort of 10 or 12 kilograms. And I am substantially leaner now than I was five or six years ago. And I think that was when I turned 40. It was just after I turned 40 that I did all that. And it made a huge difference. I noticed little things like I stopped getting acid indigestion. My knees didn't ache as much. I did feel more energetic. Um, by and large. And I also got a little bit quicker for running, though that wasn't a you know, massively important factor for me because I'm not especially quick anyway. I just like being out. But I did just build up more tolerance generally. And I did it without actually making any substantial changes. And the important thing for me about this is that I had really convinced myself that at a BMI of 25, I was a reasonable, normal weight. I definitely weighed less than most other people. I definitely wasn't as... Um, overweight as anybody else but yeah actually i have got substantial benefits from losing a little bit of weight and my experience as a gp is that even people who lose five pounds six pounds seven pounds you know sort of three four five kilograms that actually you really notice a difference when you do that they really note it they really tell you about it and it's it makes you feel good and it improves your health in a whole variety of ways so the trick to this is not to second guess it, actually face reality. Now, sometimes that involves jumping around in front of a mirror, but you can't actually beat weighing yourself. 
you got to weigh yourself. And what I recommend you do, the action plan is that you write it down as well. But the second thing that I recommend you do is because there are some circumstances, particularly with blokes who carry a lot of muscle, who are particularly broad, that actually you may have a slightly higher BMI as a result of that, is that the other thing to do and is recommended in terms of looking at cardiovascular risk is that you measure your waist circumference and you write that down. Now, a waist circumference of less than 94 centimetres or 37 inches is pretty much spot on and in exactly the right zone. Once you get above 37 inches, it's a little bit on the high side and it's been shown that that is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular problems, things like having a heart attack or a stroke. And if you get above 40 inches, then um, it's really uh, that's really suggestive that, that you're running quite a high risk. So uh, get your height as well, and you'll need that in centimetres normally or most, and, and then just plug it into a calculator on the internet. There are links for this and the numbers as well in the, in the action plan. Um, and that'll tell you BMI, and it'll also tell you your waist circumference, and you can check against that. And after that, that's my first action plan point on this, was that actually what you need to do is decide, are you happy with that weight as well? Because this is not about fat shaming people and saying you must lose weight, you're doing terribly. If you're entirely content with the weight you are, then that's fine. And there are plenty of people who have got no desire to lose weight. They don't prioritize it. My experience as a GP is that most people, the majority of people who do carry a little bit extra would actually prefer to lose a little bit of weight. They're just not quite sure how to do it. But there are also an awful lot of people out there, and I've been quite surprised by this at times, who have failed to appreciate just quite how heavy and how much overweight they have become. And when you actually look at the numbers, whether that's your weight or your BMI or your waist circumference, then it makes a huge difference to uh, giving you that boost, moving you around that sort of action cycle to get you moving and get you changing things. Okay, so the next thing I recommend, my second action point is to get some exercise and move more. Um, and that's not just because of the weight loss thing, though, certainly it's tremendously helpful. It's because actually exercise in itself, it's good for your health. Oh my goodness. It is so good for your health. Do you really need me to tell you how good for your health it is? And it's really quite a monster. It's, it's monstrous that it isn't the first line treatment for many, many of the problems we see in the doctor's surgery. And that's because nobody's making any money out of it. The pharmaceutical industry cannot package up and sell exercise. But actually, it has a tremendous amount of benefits for you in all sorts of areas, whether it's your mental health, whether it's your physical health, getting some exercise is really good. So the question is, what are you doing, first of all? And again, it's one of those you need to measure it to see. But what it's worth knowing is most countries have set out the guidance on the absolute minimum amount of physical activity it would recommend that adults should take. And it set them out for children and uh, people who are older as well. But we'll just stick to adults um, for the time being. And they generally recommend around 150 minutes per week. So that's two and a half hours, which sounds like an awful lot, but it's usually recommended that it's spread out across the whole week. And it amounts to just over 20 minutes per day. So two 10-minute walks will just about get you there. So a 10-minute walk in the morning and a 10-minute walk in the evening will give you the minimum amount of physical activity. What's incredible about this is that most people don't meet that requirement. Um, and it really is a minimum. If you do more exercise, you get more benefit. And I, I should point out that that walking would normally be a kind of brisk, a brisk walk. 
you can't just dawdle along to the bus and count that. You should really get a little bit out of breath and just a tiny bit sweaty, a little bit of a glow on um, as you go. And that works your heart, works your lungs, works your cardiovascular system and has been shown to give you significant benefit. Um, so um, getting more exercise here isn't about kind of building muscle. It's not about trying to get a six pack. It's actually about just doing the very basic. And what I think you need to do is look at it and go, have I achieved that? How many weeks in the past, how many days in the past week have I met my minimum requirement? How many weeks in the past month have I met your minimum requirement? And my advice would be to sit down and actually go back through a calendar and work it out. And then work out if you've been doing it consistently over the past few months, over the past year or so. And after that, if you can look at to see whether or not, you know, there's people fall into different categories. There's some people who are doing nothing. And of course, then just starting to do anything is really beneficial. But there are other people who are a bit more of, you know, kind of binge and famine. So they will go through and do a lot of exercise and then fall away and do nothing for a few months. So actually, you need to build your exercise habit based on that. And if you're doing nothing at the moment, aiming for two 10-minute walks a day is probably where you want to start. But if you're going out and running once or twice a week or doing some other kind of exercise, whether it's aerobics or uh, yoga or whatever else it is, actually maybe think, well, actually, I need to just build up and do one more session a week or two more sessions a week of the things you like to do in order to get uh, fitter. If it's difficult, ideally, the ideal circumstance is to spread your exercise out over the week. But there is actually, I've read some evidence that suggests that the kind of weekend warrior approach where you do a lot of your exercise all confined into the um, the confines of those couple of days at the weekend actually is just about as beneficial. And it might well work out that in terms of your life, whether it's your family life or work, whether you pick, you've picked up extra shifts at work, then actually maybe that'll make the difference. And that is that's how you need to go about doing things. And my general, my other advice on this is that you should track what you do. And you don't have to get anything fancy for this, but an, a notebook is absolutely perfectly fine. You can write it down on a diary. But technology is your friend here as well. And there are a lot of good apps that do it and they will do it for free. Apps like Strava or Endomondo will um, um, accomplish exactly that. And you don't necessarily have to share either. You can make all those activities private and you can just use it as your own private log. I have recorded all mine on Strava for the past few years and it's really interesting and quite motivating to see what I've done over the past few weeks and past few months and recognize if I'm doing plenty or if I'm up to date or if I need to make an effort to try and build in more exercise into the course of my week. And I mean, my normal exercise is about four or five hours a week. That is, I've been very consistently doing that for a number of years. And when I started back in a few years ago, when I wanted to lose a little bit of weight, I increased it a little bit. I was probably doing maybe two or three hours at the most and I made an effort to slowly come up to four or five hours. What I have found is that I can't really do any more than that without it becoming having a really big impact on my life and my family and my work. Um, I find myself much more fatigued and I find myself away from my family a lot more. But I can make four or five hours a week work on an average week. And that actually helps me stay really fit for what I want to do and what I want to achieve. My other piece of advice is just to be really careful if you're uh, when you get your first flush of enthusiasm for exercise is not to take the whole bull in a china shop, shop approach. You really want to not get injured. It's one of my golden rules. Don't get injured. You have to be consistent. The trick is to be doing this week after week, month after month. And if you rush at it, 
you go too quick, you get broken, that's going to give you difficulties. We've talked on the podcast before about running injuries, and they do sometimes just happen. It can't be helped. But don't be the architect of your own downfall. Okay, so let's get on to number three. And the number three on my list is get a grip of your diet. It's all about what you're eating. And this is not just about eating less or eating more healthily. I mean, kind of obviously that's important. I have got a few different things here that I think are important. My, my fundamental uh, issue with all of this is that in Western society, we consume too much. And I think everybody knows that. But part of the reason we consume too much is because we're offered food nowadays on every single street corner. You walk down the high street and there are bakeries and there are coffee shops selling cakes and pastries and there are you know news agents or there are you know there are supermarkets um the kind of city versions you can't walk anywhere without us without being offered food at every single turn and we only have a certain amount of resistance if you keep getting offered and you keep getting offered and offered and offered eventually your resistance breaks down and i think the other problem that we've got with our diet these days is that it is far too easy to consume cheap and nasty calories things like refined sugars and I don't subscribe to the sugar is evil kind of approach philosophy in quite the same way as many people. But I think it's very hard to have a good quality diet while there's a lot of refined crappy sugars in it. One of the best ways to take action on this is to keep a note of the what you eat, to keep um, a food diary. Now, that used to be an unbelievably difficult exercise, looking at labels, deciding what's going on. And if you have a smartphone, it is now ridiculously easy. And certainly in the past couple of years, I've used an app on, I've actually used my fitness pal, the other, other ones around. And John and I talked about this in a past episode as well about diets. And I'll try to link to that. That actually just about every food substance known to man is now on the, uh, now appears on these databases. And to the extent that you can even scan the barcode using the camera on your smartphone, and it'll tell you exactly how many calories are in that particular item of food. So, I would don't recommend doing this all the time, but it is incredibly instructive and I found it incredibly useful. Even though I thought my diet was quite useful, I went uh, quite good. I went through and did my fitness pal for three or four weeks, one January. And it told me a lot about what I was eating. And it told me a lot about the quality of the food that I was eating as well. And I noticed particularly that there are certain things that I am more prone to eating. I'm very bad for eating crisps. I'm not too bad with chocolate. And um, when I actually lost that weight that I was talking about a few years ago, one of the things I did was give up crisps. And that made a huge difference to the number of calories I was taking in every single day. And um, if you count the calories, something called the Hawthorne effect will probably kick in. And the Hawthorne effect is when basically when you measure something, it changes your behavior. It's very difficult to stick to eating rubbish when you're having to record it down and put it there's there on the computer screen, on your phone screen every single time. And you can see how much over your daily uh, amount of calories you are going. Um, I think there's a few other sort of handy tips and hints around eating. One of the first, perhaps I'll just stick to two for the moment. The first thing I would say is don't drink calories. Now, that might be alcohol. That might be fizzy drinks or sugary lattes or fruit juice. Keep your calories from fluid down to a minimum. I have a glass, a small glass of orange juice with my breakfast. But actually, apart from that, I avoid taking calories in. 
um, through liquid at all. Now, I know that a lot of people like smoothies and get a lot of enjoyment from those. But actually, you've just got to be a little bit careful that it can be difficult that you're not necessarily you're going to you can take a lot of calories unintentionally. So as long as you're intentionally using them, you know what you're doing, you understand how many calories you're getting. But just be careful you don't accidentally consume far more than you might realize. And I think the other thing I would uh, recommend is that you fight back against the upselling of food. So that is when you get offered to go large at McDonald's or whether you get offered a chocolate bar at WH Smith's Extra. Just learn to say, no, thanks, mate. I kind of, I can't emphasize enough. They're always trying to sell you two chocolate bars for, a, you know, slightly more than the cost of one chocolate bar. Now, they look at me like I've got two heads, but I'll often say, no, no, thanks. I'm fine. Because I know that if I have the second chocolate bar, if I have the extra large, I'll just eat it all. It does. I won't save it for later. It won't keep it. I'll just eat it. I'll just consume it. So a couple of very small changes like that may be enough to actually help nudge your diet in the right direction. But I would really recommend looking at your diet. And if, you can, if, you can, if you're really motivated, using something like MyFitnessPal app or one of the, those other diet apps is an incredibly useful way to get a feel for exactly what you're consuming when. Perhaps the most importantly, it's usually between meals. Most people's meal sizes aren't going to make, aren't in themselves going to be a massive problem. It's what you're doing in between those meals that tends to be where all the damage is happening. Okay, so we've done losing weight, exercise, diet. They're all kind of things that people might think of. This number four is a little bit different. Um, and it's about loneliness. And I think I've got it quite up here because I've heard the, you know, I've heard the phrase sitting is the new smoking. But I would suggest that actually, according to the research, being lonely is truly the new smoking. There's quite a lot of public health data and evidence that's now coming out that's showing that people who don't enjoy good social connections have much worse, much poorer psychological health and well-being. And that then translates into things like heart attacks, strokes, cancer, deaths. Basically, being lonely and the stress that's associated with that then leads to physical health problems as well as um, psychological well-being problems. So, this one's gone under the radar for quite a long time. And I think particularly men and blokes are bad at uh, taking care of this one. And it's easy to become socially isolated. So one of the things you need to do is have an honest conversation with yourself about whether or not it's a possibility. And actually um, recognize that if you are alone, that can lead to feelings of feeling down and lonely, which actually leads you to not want to be with others. And there's a vicious circle here as well. So part of actually trying to do this, trying to tackle this, is to break that vicious circle. Um, there's a very good website that I'm very happy to recommend called the, um, the Campaign to End Loneliness. And they have got a simple measurement tool as well. Now, there's lots of different ways to measure loneliness. So we don't need to get too bogged down in it because a lot of it is to do with research. But there are three questions they ask, and I think they're probably worth bearing in mind. And you have to score these whether you strongly disagree or strongly agree with them. And they are whether you're content with your friendships and relationships, whether you have enough people to feel comfortable. At, I haven't. So the question is, I have enough people I feel comfortable asking for help at any time. And the third question is, my relationships are as satisfying as I would want them to be. Three statements. So I am content with my friendships and relationships. I have enough people I feel comfortable asking for help at any time. My relationships 
are as satisfying as I would want them to be. And they're just sort of three three little areas that can give you a marker about whether or not there's a possibility um, you could be getting a little bit lonely and a little bit socially isolated. Now, of course, there are lots of ways to tackle this. It might involve making contact with old friends or mates, whether that's picking up the phone or sending a message. I think the one bit of advice I'd be is to be very careful about using social media to accomplish some of this. There is some evidence around that I've seen that actually people who are on Facebook more are more likely to be lonely. Now, whether that's because they're desperately seeking for some companionship and Facebook's not quite providing it, or whether or not it's actually causal is a different question, and I'd be careful about assuming that. But I think most of us have had that experience with social media that actually you don't necessarily make yourself feel better by looking at social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, actually, real sustainable social connections are really important. Um, and tackling loneliness could be a really important part of any healthy bloke action plan. Okay, so talking about loneliness leads me on to action point five, which is to do with mental health. This is obviously a particularly critical one when it comes to men and masculinity. And that's mostly because of the quite startling imbalance when it comes to suicide. And the highest suicide rate in the UK in men is in those aged 40 to 44. Now, obviously, mental health encompasses a lot of issues which go beyond just um, the appalling tragedy of suicide. Uh, There is depression, of course, but there's things like anxiety, you know, all the other mental health conditions that could come about, kind of uh, whether that's, you know, manic depressive, um, bipolar disorder, I should say, or uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, more serious, even more serious psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia. They are all uh, very, you know, they are tremendously serious. One of the things that I've included on the um, uh, in the Healthy Bloke Action Plan is a very simple questionnaire that has been used by doctors called the Patient Health Questionnaire, PHQ-9, which just gives you some idea about whether or not there's a possibility of um, of depression being there. It used to be the case a few years ago that all doctors were required to complete this when we saw anybody who we thought had depression. And um, so it's got a little bit of a bad reputation amongst doctors because doctors don't like doing questionnaires. They'd rather speak to patients. Um, I always found it okay, actually, and it it introduced some interesting questions. One of the things that it kind of asked questions is, there was was one question around that. If you you felt particularly guilty or worthless, and it it was a really... It was a really um, powerful question and that people who were struggling would often become quite uh, upset or distressed when you asked a question. So like using any questionnaire, it was important that you didn't just sit there and read them off and that you, you know, you kind of, it, it became more of a conversation and opened up some different areas, which I found useful. So the kind of things that are worth asking yourself, there's a couple of simple questions And it's during the last month, have you been feeling down, depressed or hopeless? Yes or no. During the last month, have you been often been, have you often been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things? Yes or no. So obviously the feeling down, depressed or hopeless is a really obvious thing to ask. But the second one is really important because people who get a bit depressed and low often lose interest and pleasure in doing the things that they would normally do. And so if you answer yes to both of those, then that can point towards other more um 
you know, a more serious diag- potential of a more serious diagnosis going on. My advice to this is because doing a questionnaire online isn't the easiest. I've included the questionnaires in the action plan. But I think if you are in a position where you think you're struggling, clearly going to seek help from your local healthcare professional, whether it's a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a doctor or a GP, is incredibly important. There are lots of other things. If you think it's a fairly low level, there are lots of other things you can do to help with depression and low mood and other mental health problems. One of the most obvious ones, as we've already mentioned, is get some exercise. It's free, almost entirely without side effects. And there are some pretty good evidence emerging now about mindfulness, although it was perhaps some would, it seemed very, you know, it's very on trend. Actually, there's some pretty good evidence emerging about mindfulness. And the third thing I would say is be very careful about using any substances at all if you've got mental health problems. Alcohol is the classic one. It really is um, an obvious uh, way that people turn to if they're feeling pretty rotten or they go out and have a few drinks. But its association and the way it causes its causation with mental health problems in the long term can be pretty disastrous. Okay, so number six, action plan. What is your sleep like? That is really the question. If you get your sleep wrong, it really messes up your life. And absolutely do not buy into this. And there's a quote by um, at the start of this um, that don't buy into the 20 hours a day entrepreneur myth. You need to sleep eight hours a day to have a focused mind. And absolutely, I'm 100% subscribed to this. There is incredibly powerful evidence that being sleep deprived or having problems with your sleep damages your health in the long run. And I'm absolutely certain it damages your um, productivity as well. So if you're going to take action on this, you need to have a good hard think about whether or not you're getting enough sleep. And so the first question you might ask is, what is the right amount of sleep? And like all these things, there isn't really a correct answer. Eight hours is a handy average. But it's probably seven to nine hours, depending on the individual. Uh, perhaps people who are a bit older are known to sleep for not quite as long. They do suffer from slightly poorer quality sleep. It might be six or seven hours might be enough in those cases. But actually, six or seven hours in most people, for most healthy adults who are a little bit perhaps under the age of 60, 70, that's actually going to ruin your health. It's going to damage your immune system increase your risk of all sorts of problems, including including cancer, according to the research in the end. But I would also argue it's going to make you feel pretty horrendous. One of the, there are, again, uh, there's a really good questionnaire called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. I'd have included a link to that. And that's a really good thing to do. If you think you're struggling with your sleep, you're not getting enough, then actually go along to that, take the, uh, follow the link, and you can complete that questionnaire. And if you think you come out a bit low, then I think this is a really important area to take action on. And there are lots of different ways we can do that. And I have no doubt we will cover all these in the future about how to tackle these. One of the, some of the basics that we talk about are something called sleep hygiene. And that's just the kind of good practices around sleep that have been shown to be beneficial. So some of the things are stick to a plan, have a bedtime and a getting up time and try to make it a routine. Uh, absolutely critical. And I talked, I was on the Modern Wisdom podcast with Chris Williamson just recently, and we were talking about sleep and sleep and phones and screen use. And I, you know, I can't recommend highly enough turning off your phone a good amount of time before you go to bed, probably at least an hour. 
and keep the gadgets out of the bedroom. No phones, no TVs, no distraction. Um, That can make a huge difference to helping you sleep. Um, Sleep in a cool, dark bedroom. That will help your body get into sleep mode. And in particular, there's it's been shown that you, the drop in your body temperature is one of the mechanisms that helps you fall asleep. So that can be really useful. And you need to be aware of what you're eating and drinking. You know, caffeine a few hours before bedtime can be a problem. I know some people feel that they really, by the time they get to late afternoon, um, any caffeine then will damage their ability to go to sleep. And I'd be very careful about alcohol. Um, it might feel like you're it's helping you get to sleep, but it tends to wreck the quality of your sleep. And, and who knows, perhaps that's one of the mechanisms, how it damages mental health and how it can affect and cause problems with mental health in the long run. I certainly, uh, you certainly need to stay away from it. Okay, so that brings us on to number seven, which is alcohol, tackling alcohol. So again, this is one of those that if you know you've got an alcohol concern and that you're drinking too much well it's relatively straightforward but perhaps the one to capture is those who might be having a few drinks and think it isn't affecting them if you are the person who's cracking open two or three bottles a week and you don't have wine i should add and you don't quite think it's you um, that's affected by alcohol you may want to think again so one of the things i would do first is and this obviously health is all linked and one of this is it links back to the diet and the drinking calories thing at the start Alcohol is chock full of calories. The alcohol itself is calorific. So it doesn't matter if you're drinking beer or if you're drinking shorts. Actually, the alcohol is calorific. And so you, you know, the advice of don't drink calories is particularly important here as well. Uh, and you know, using one of the f- tracking apps for diet will give you a very clear idea, indication of how much you're taking in in alcohol. And if you're after losing a little bit of weight, uh, that's one of your aims then cutting back on the alcohol will make a huge difference. Alcohol, of course, causes all sorts of other problems. It's bad for your mental health, we've mentioned. There's not many systems of the body physically that it doesn't damage as well. Uh, Men are particularly bad when it comes to alcohol. They fight, they get injured, they get into trouble with the police. It poisons relationships, can ruin careers. Uh, I mean, having a few drinks is fine and social, And I'm very aware of the loneliness one here that actually it's part of a normal social engagement as well. But we just need to be very careful that it doesn't spill over into something more serious. One of the best ways of doing that is to measure it with, um, you know, a simple way that should be done in healthcare settings more often than it is, is to use something called the audit questionnaire. And that's the Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test. And it was actually designed by the World Health Organization um, a lot of years ago. Now, there are a couple of different versions. It's easy to find online. And again, there are links um, on the action plan. One of the things you can do, first of all, is called the Audit C. And that's the audit consumption. It consists of just three questions. And it asks you, how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? How many units of alcohol do you drink on a typical day when you are drinking? And how often have you had eight or more units on a single occasion in the last year. So that's a definition of a binge in most of the medical literature. Um, The first thing, of course, is you need to work out uh, how to calculate units. And I've included a link for that as well. Most people will know that a single unit of spirit, a single measure of spirits is is one unit. Your average pint of beer will be sort of two to three units as a consequence. Um, But that'll give you an idea. So you go through and you score this. If you score more than five on that initial questionnaire, then it recommends going on and doing the rest. 
No, and there are another seven questions. And even, you know, that sounds forbidding, but it really only does take a minute or two to actually do it. And I'd strongly recommend doing this. And it might just give you an indication that actually maybe my alcohol is not at particularly healthy levels. I'd be careful about asking your doctor whether or not it is the case. It's been shown that doctors are particularly poor at highlighting. I've seen evidence that shows that doctors are particularly good at, sorry, particularly poor at identifying people who have alcohol problems unless they're pretty much full-blown alcohol dependence syndrome type of um, uh, problems. And I, I don't think that's about criticizing doctors particularly. I think it's a cultural thing that actually, particularly maybe in the UK, but lots of countries around the world, alcohol is accepted as part of the normal social fabric. And actually, even at the levels which are acceptable socially, they can be causing you quite a lot of harm physically and psychologically. So if you're keen to do something, you're looking to address your physical and psychological health, addressing alcohol is a really important point, part of that. Um, and I think one of the really useful things to do is to draw clear links between the physical and psychological problems you're having and the alcohol. Recognize that they're linked. They are absolutely uh, coexistent and they are interdependent. If you're having difficulties with weight gain, if you're having difficulties with depression or anxiety, Recognize that alcohol is a really important part of those and that addressing them is going to be really, uh, is, you know, if you want to address them, then you, can, you probably can't have both. If you go through the action plan, I hope it just kind of helps you get a grip of where you are in terms of your health, in terms of these seven major areas. There's a Richard Feynman quote on this that I really like. And that the quote is, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And I think we all do that to ourselves. We all can kid ourselves along. And actually going through some of these seven areas and actually working it through and actually doing the numbers, whether it's measuring yourself or measuring what you eat or doing the alcohol questionnaire or, um, or doing a loneliness questionnaire, whatever it is, it's much harder to fool yourself when you see the results down there in front of you in black and white. Okay, so that's it, folks. That's been through all seven of these. And as I said a second ago, they, you know, there are lots of different health areas you can address. And, um, but I think these cover some of the major problems that people have. And if you can tackle some of these, and even myself, I look at these and I'm very aware of the areas where I'm not doing so well. Um, and I kind of, I get, you know, I've tackled some weight and uh, I'm getting some exercise, but I'm not sure how well I do on my kind of social circumstances and whether I'm getting enough social engagement. I'm very aware that actually, if I really want to develop my health and uh, improve my health for the coming years, that's one area that I could really do with paying attention to. So we've all got our own little wrinkles. Um, and even those of us who are feeling fairly comfortable about the levels of physical exercise we do and um, may not be lucky enough not to be suffering from any mental health problems. There are always ways to address and to keep on um, tackling and improving um, and taking action on our own fitness and health. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.blocology.io slash 012. And you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at uh, blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up there and you will also be sent the Healthy Bloke Action Plan PDF. So we've obviously talked about that lots this week. And I think you'll find it's full of lots of really helpful links 
uh, some of the questionnaires and the questions are there. And it just gives you a bit of a, a, a starting point. And we're going to cover all of these topics in the future on the podcast in considerable depth. But actually knowing what might be helpful to you at the start gives you a bit of a focus and allows you to crack on. So uh, thanks again. Please do leave a review and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. Any feedback is very welcome and you can leave comments, send me email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.